Welcome to a special episode of Broadway Radio. I'm arts and culture writer Ashley Steves, and today I am very happy to be joined in self-isolation by special guest Jennifer Ashley Tepper, who, if there is a job related to theater, she is doing it. Historian, writer, producer, consultant, the creative and programming director at Feinstein's 54 Below in Manhattan, the producer of Broadway's Be More Chill, and so much more. Generally, one of my very favorite people to interview. So thank you so much for joining me here today, Jen. Thank you for having me. That was the nicest introduction. I'm so happy to be chatting with you. (laughs) I'm glad. I know from uh, social media, you've been in the midst of a smash rewatch, as well (laughs) as um, (laughs) some book drafts. So it seems like you're staying busy as ever, at least. Yes, you know, it's such a crazy time of all of us self-isolating, and I think everyone is just trying to figure out how to, um, you know, stay sane, and there's so much we can't control right now, so figuring out the things we can control, like what we do with all of this time, Uh, and for me, I've just, like, I've been overjoyed to be able to, like, focus on my fourth book, which um, I wrote my first three volumes of The Untold Stories of Broadway, like, very uh, relatively quickly in 2013, 14, and 16, and it's been four years since I've had the time and the bandwidth to read really like be able to just have days of researching and falling down rabbit holes of history and writing you know (laughs) it's been a lot of that for me and uh the smash rewatch has been so great because I did this awesome thing where I was so obsessed with smash but then I never rewatched it after it went off the air so it's my first full rewatch perfect Um, time Uh, it's not a secret to people who listen to the show but a secret to many people that I talk to I have never seen smash in full Oh my God, you're in for a treat because I think the best way to watch this is to be like, you know, chronologically go in order and, you know, live tweet us your thoughts. But um, it's, um, it's amazing to, to watch it all at once as opposed to, you know, once a week kind of thing. Uh, I haven't gotten to season two yet because honestly, I am not sure I'm ready to handle reliving the like, you know, my close <laughs> collaborator, Joe Iconis on television with his songs yeah, and all that. Yeah. Yet. But super oh, excited goodness. to rewatch all of it. Yeah, from what I've heard from everyone, it's a documentary anyway, so it feels a little (laughs) too close right now. I don't know if there's a pandemic storyline, but they might need to do season three just for that. No pandemic (laughs) storyline. Everyone was so overly, not everyone, but a lot of people were overly critical when it was on the air about, oh, this wouldn't really happen, that wouldn't really happen. And of course, there's like a moment here and there all the time where it's like, oh yeah, that conversation that has to do with the plot wouldn't happen in that area of the theater kind of inaccuracies, you know, so to speak. But it's a a TV show, a drama things and I have so loved that in the time it's gone off the air people have joked that smashed in the documentary because crazy things happen on Broadway all the time <laughs> it's true exhibit a oh goodness <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to talk, uh, start by talking on the history side of all of this with the coronavirus shutdown, both as far as Broadway shutdowns in the past and If there's any sort of precedent as far as something like this in the past, we've talked a lot on Today on Broadway about the shutdown around 9-11, but that was pretty brief. As far as anything else I can really think of in the past, it's mostly all been labor strikes. Like 1975, for instance, there was local 802 Musicians Union that was on strike for, I think, 25 days. So do we have any precedent for this, even on a shorter term? 
Um, do you know one of the most fascinating things, and you just covered a lot of the answer about this, but one of the most fascinating things I've kind of dug into mm. is that um, in the flu pandemic uh, of 1918 and in the late 1910s and early 1920s when um, yeah. the flu pandemic, uh, theater did not shut down. And actually, there's an argument right. that made yeah. theater did shut down. Um, it might have saved lives. Uh, at the time, you know, sales dipped and it was definitely like you could see the pandemic in terms of what was going on on Broadway, like shows weren't able to run and find audiences and um, all of that. But the theaters themselves never fully shut down. Um, and honestly, they should have, you know. So the fact that uh, that didn't yeah. happen, it was a very different time. You know, it was over 100 years ago. Uh, but in the modern history of Broadway, we've sure, never had a time where shorter. a public health issue has shut down, uh, you know, theater universally in the way that it has now. Um, and it's interesting when we talk about the parallels to like 9-11 and other times when, you know, if you look at Broadway history, there's plenty of times where, um, you know, I'll be like, oh, yeah, like when JFK was assassinated, theater didn't come back for a couple of days. You know, there's all of these instances where a tragic right. event of American history has impacted a theater shutdown. And then there's all the strike history. But in terms of public health, uh, mm-hmm. this is unprecedented in modern theater history. Yeah, as you said, on the general side, like a lot of people are pointing to both that flu pandemic of 1918-1919, as well as the AIDS crisis is semi-comparable to what is happening. But that's more on, you know, the casualty mortality side more than anything. As you said, Broadway didn't shut down during the flu pandemic. There was a labor shutdown during that time, I think, for like a month, but it wasn't because of public health. It was because of union issues. And then the AIDS crisis, which took out theater in a completely different way, which I mean, is a very long conversation and project I'm eternally working on. Yeah, you know, there's certainly like parallels and we should, you know, discuss and think about it, but it is very different from all those things as much as it does have, you know, there are similarities. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a lot of people have now been joking about the like Shakespeare wrote King Lear during a plague, but there was like a plague for almost oh, yeah. the time that Shakespeare was alive. And if you look at not modern theater right. history and not Broadway theater <laughs> history, but the history of like public health in terms of entertainment gatherings, like certainly, you know, the plague was spread by people going to the theater in Shakespeare's time. So, um, you know, you can look at the kind yeah. of the the similarities and the differences. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, I you know I think everyone is kind of looking at the what comes next of all this. You know, when Broadway returns, when off Broadway returns, what is that going to look like? Say if everything has been shut down for a very generous three months, like what are the first steps that you see aside from getting everyone back into rehearsals? You know what's interesting is like. Obviously, none of us know what's going to happen. And again, it's so unprecedented. Um, But the fact that, you know, this is not certainly when we returned from like 9-11 happening, which was after just like a couple days, it was a slow buildup to regain audiences and make people feel safe coming to New York City and all of those things. And this will be a very different version of that. But I think even when theater is safely able to start up again, um, being able to show, you know, the people that typically come to New York to see a Broadway show that it's safe will be a different um, challenge than making it safe in itself. So, uh, you know, that'll be interesting to see how that turns out. And also, you know, this is spread by people being in close proximity to each other. So it's, you know, just as easily spread in a group of 200 as it is in a group of 1,000 in some ways. But in other ways, uh, the argument could be made that smaller gatherings even you know a, a like a 200 smaller gathering is 
slightly safer. So I'm not sure what will happen in terms of like the intersection of uh, instructions from the government about how large gatherings we can start mm-hmm. happening and, you know, theater. Uh, there's definitely been talk in the community that there might be a world where it's safe to gather at like off Broadway theaters before Broadway, but who knows if that'll be the case. You know, I think that there's so many factors mm-hmm. in terms of, um, you know, flattening the curve and in terms of finding, uh, you know, actual vaccine. And uh, there's all these things that we're going to uh, see how they intersect with the public gatherings of entertainment and, you know, Broadway in the next two years even. Right. Yeah, we've talked about a bit on the show, especially as far as touring productions and how these national tours of Broadway shows have been affected and how especially difficult it is for them because take a community, a a small, a community that has been slightly affected versus a commu- a large community that has been majorly affected by shutdowns and by the virus like there's going to be a lot of anxiety not just on top of making sure everyone is safe but there's going to be a lot of anxiety still as far as people getting back into theaters and feeling safe in those small spaces as you said both making people safe af- feel safe after 9-11 returning to the theater, but also now making people feel safe to come back to New York and get in these huge gatherings to see shows is going to be a huge thing. But this is not just, you know, a New York problem. It is a countrywide theater problem at this point. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's, we are obviously in a unique position in New York in terms of the way that the virus has affected the everyday goings on here anyway in the quarantine. Um, and there are other parts of the country that haven't experienced that yet. And supposedly will, you know, be at a New York level and that hasn't happened yet. So the way that national tours and all of the theater in all different parts of the country are going to be affected, like, I don't think that people have fully even started to wrap their brains around that. Yeah. You mentioned people might feel better about getting, maybe, I mean, all all hypothetically at this point, but might feel better about getting into off-Broadway houses where the crowds are smaller rather than Broadway houses where you can top, like, you know, what is it the max house 1500 uh the problem with off-broadway as we all know is that these are all short-run shows and so many including like michael friedman's unknown soldier at playwrights horizons which has especially torn me up has had to close early uh is there any feasible way? I mean, a lot of these houses set their schedules pretty far in advance or have had to cancel their whole seasons, but what would have to go into, like, what is the feasible way of certain shows maybe returning down the line as we're kind of looking for, looking towards at Broadway houses where shows have been postponed rather than canceled? Is there any possibility of that for Broadway, off-Broadway companies? You know, it's one of the most, fascinating and crazy parts as far as the entertainment you know aspect to wrap my head around as a theater historian because it's so unprecedented like when we think about the fact that this will be the first year without the tony awards and without um all these you know and things that happen every year um it's uh, i mean when i the day that broadway shut down when this was all you know this like everything was hitting the fan and uh you know i had tickets Mm -hmm. to flying over sunset that night the first preview like it was all of that was happening yeah yeah yeah. Oh, I mean, it's so crazy. But, you know, my first thought was Unknown Soldier. It was not like, you know, my second thought was like, oh, my God, all the fifth for Belinda, all of the Broadway. But Unknown Soldier, the fact that 
you know, to take just like that one show as an example, something that people have worked on for a decade and that gets this short moment in the spotlight. I mean, thankfully, Unknown Soldier at least got to have some performances when you think of things like Whisper House that right. you know, didn't yeah. even get to happen. Um, it's so uh, off-Broadway is like a moment, you know, it's a moment in time in that way. And that's part of what makes off-Broadway magical. Um, but those shows, like, you know, as you sure. said, off-Broadway theater companies have their season and they all have limited runs. And that's true for some Broadway, too. But um, the fact that there is not really a way to have those happen later without canceling other things. And all of those artists are the way that those shows are scheduled and slotted in to um, both the theaters and the artist schedules. Uh, it's it's really like, it's both really sad. And I I kind of think that some of them will be able to come back in some capacity. You know, there will be some theater company three years from now that's like, oh my God, we have a spot where we can bring people together and make Unknown Soldier happen again, since it had that abbreviated Mm -hmm. moment during the crisis. Um, But there will be a lot of those shows that are lost. And, you know, I keep calling it the lost season. Um, But, you know, of course, those shows will, some of them will get recordings. And certainly we want to do some of them in concert at 54 Below. And they'll have other productions and licenses and opportunities. But but theater is theater. And it only happens in the way it happens that one time. And that exact group of people is never going to gather at Playwrights Horizons to do that production again. Like that moment is over. So the fact that we have Broadway shows and off-Broadway shows that both were in rehearsal and didn't happen, and that shut down and will not be able to come back in the same way. I mean, (laughs) it's just a lot to kind of figure out and also look it's um you know theater is made by people giving money and this is going to impact the financial you know situation in america so deeply that being able to make these shows happen will obviously be inextricably tied up with how broadway and investors and off-broadway donors and off-broadway companies that now have all of these financial struggles going on and don't know how the government might or might not be able to help um you know it's all tied into that so um you know we're going to be seeing this is like a huge moment in history and we're going to be unpacking the impact for a long time it's interesting you talk about it being like the lost like a lost period of time in theater history. Cause I mean, you and I have talked about this bunch as far and like in terms of the Jonathan Larson project and you know, just the preservation of things that didn't get to see the light of day. So it's going to be interesting, say even 10 years from now, how uh, especially off Broadway works are kind of being cataloged and how, if at all, they're going to some of these works that we didn't get a chance to see this season are going to be either recorded for posterity, if they're going to be, as you said, maybe done like as a one night only kind of show at 54 Below or a similar venue. That's what's really interesting to me right now is just kind of the preservation of all of this, if 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 there will be preservation of it. Totally. Um, I was thinking about this, so like literally right before this call, uh, one of my collaborators, Jeffrey Coe, was like asking me as like a theater historian, he was mm. reading something, and he was like, what was wrong with the 1995 season? Just because that season historically, you know, had uh, <laughs> so many categories yeah. that didn't exist and barely any best musical nominees. And it was like, a famously, a very dry time for Broadway. And he was asking me about it. And I was like, you know, in 1995, like the theater was just seeing the impact of um, the AIDS crisis and all the artists that had been taken away whose work, um, oh, you know, yeah. the Michael Bennett and the Howard Ashton's that we'd lost like there weren't Michael Bennett and Howard Ashton shows for Broadway and like the Times Square Theater District was just starting to get cleaned up and like all of those things that went into 1995 but that started happening long before 1995 and when we look back at the way that this time has impacted the next 10 years or 20 years like similarly um you know there'll be ways that our seeds are being planted during this crisis and you know some of that could be like 
you know, the absence of commercial theater in the same way for the next two years could cause a bunch of artists to start creating um, non-commercial shows that could then have live five or yeah. eight years from now. You know, there are good things that come from terrible things in all, you know, eras of entertainment and the arts. So, um, you know, it's similar to 1995, though. It's like the, the reason why 1995 was empty started way earlier than that. And the things that people started creating in 1995, you know, 10 years after that were filling Broadway with like, you know, wonderful entertainment. So you just, you know, the way that theater is like a timeline, it's not like the things that are happening right now only affect right now. Like we'll see this for the next 10 or 20 years. Oh, yeah. Definitely. You actually, in mentioning Howard Ashman and kind of shifting a bit, you actually said one of my favorite things recently on social media and talking about the death of Terrence McNally, which I think, I mean, we're all going to be grappling with for a very long time. I know you interviewed him for Untold Stories of Broadway, and I'd love to have you talk a little bit about his legacy in a second. But you had said when someone died, quote, when someone dies of coronavirus, let's fucking yell that they died of coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Michael Friedman and I spent a night in 2015 screaming about a thing that irresponsibly said only, quote, Howard Ashman died in 1991, unquote. Howard Ashman died of AIDS, name the plague, make them hear you and i mean you, again you and i have had very long talks about michael friedman for a piece i did last year ahead of the civilians recording project so that you know pretty much just knocked me on my ass and obviously something i very much agree with because nothing happens in a vacuum and it's it's death by negligence as you mentioned the government it's death by negligence and it's unfortunately as i'm bracing myself for every day at this point with McNally and Mark Blum, likely not the last we'll see. Totally. And the thing is, like, you know, death is inextricably tied with this moment in political history in a way that, you know, we can't avoid. And in fact, avoiding it discredits the memory of people who, you know, are suffering and have died. So I think that, you know, and I, I Absolutely. watched an incredible Terrence McNally documentary recently, which I so recommend. Um, oh, I haven't well. gotten into it yet. I know. It's so great. It's so great. And his legacy is so incredible. And the shows and the way that he changed musical theater and straight plays and, you know, Broadway. I mean, he what an incredible artist and what an incredible life he had. Um, and I think it only, you know, credits his life to be able to, you know, say, you know, he died of this terrible thing that's happening that we can all take action against. Um, you know, I think that that is speaking in his memory in a positive way to affect change. So I think that, um, you know, it's mm -hmm. devastating yeah. to have lost him. Um, and, you know, we can like honor his memory by speaking up in that way, because God knows he spoke up about so many things about like LGBTQ rights, yes. about the AIDS crisis, about so much. And, um, you know, it's, it's really sad and terrifying to think that you know, we're going to lose more people and more artists to this. And so like, we have to, you know, call your senator and like, you know, do what you can to help with what's going on right yes. now. You know, it's it, the Michael Friedman thing of it all is like, we did yell about that. It's such a like memory that is burned in my brain. I could tell you the street we were walking down, we were yelling about it. Um, and it's, it's almost impossible. I think for all of us, you know, as you said, the comparisons aren't exact, but to have these moments where you're like, Oh, this reminds me of this thing I learned that happened during the AIDS crisis or during nine 11, um, you know, because of the way that our brains work, it's, it's, that's how we kind of digest it. I love that you have like these two really always prescient Michael Friedman associations. One that we talked about regarding Jonathan Larson and legacy. And now this one. 
Yeah, you know, I think uh, spiritually, it's like Michael just connected a lot of synapses in his life. The fact that we had a conversation about oh, Jonathan's yeah. legacy and about Howard's legacy. Um, like, obviously, Michael was so active at City Center and with Encores and activating yeah. those legacies. And so, um, you know, I love your incredible piece about him and Jonathan. And I think that, you know, the Michael Friedman albums that I I again like watch the Terrence McNally documentary everyone like listen to those Michael Friedman albums uh there's so <laughs> much good stuff to kind of occupy your brain and heart with during this time and among the, those definitely Terrence McNally uh ragtime love valor compassion masterclass kiss of the spider woman talk to me about his legacy on especially American theater and what his work has meant and what kind of a person he was you know, I watched the documentary. I was so struck by the fact that, A, his memory was incredible. And this happened when I interviewed him. Like, he, mm. I, you know, you've interviewed so many people. I have, too. And it's like, sometimes you're like, oh, these are the yeah. incredible stories that this person tells about this landmark show. And they're telling me. And that's amazing. And sometimes you're like, oh, this person gives a different interview every time they talk to someone because they have such <laughs> yes. memory. And because they really want to give you the exact answer to the question you're asking in terms of Nally, I feel like he had just like a sharp Rolodex about every single thing that ever happened to him. And you can see that in the documentary. And that's part of what made him such an incredible writer um, and person uh, and artist and collaborator. And so that that's definitely one thing. But, you know, one of the things also that you think about is like he wrote about LGBTQ issues and uh, characters in a mm -hmm. way that was both fighting for their rights, but also in a way that was just like, here's this character that happens to be gay or here's this, you know. Yeah, humanizing. It, it, it was so something that, you know, was not done at the time. And the fact that, like, when, you know, gay people still couldn't be married and didn't have the rights that they have now, he was writing about things that were making people angry and that were considered dangerous to write about. And he wrote about them anyway. Um, yeah. And he had this long career doing that. And also, like, writing about all kinds of topics. And so I think that, um, you know, when you look at something like ragtime and the way that that covers immigration and just so many things that, you know, are relevant now and will be relevant forever. Um, he just was so great at getting into the minds of characters um, and all of his work like reflects that and is so different. Uh, you know, he, he was such a incredibly eclectic, varied writer as well. So, I mean, his legacy is endless and I definitely want to uh, dig into like Love, Valor, Compassion a little more because I don't know that one as well. Um, but I, you know, again, the documentary mm -hmm. is incredible and like it's, you know, in my fourth book, there's going to be some stories from him that no one's read yet. So I've been working on those as well. Oh, exciting. Love to hear that. <laughs> now, as the as I said at the top of the show, uh, including the book, you're pretty much doing everything these days. And that puts you in kind of a unique position to be at the center of theater, cabaret and film. I'm pretty sure it's public knowledge at this point. You're serving as a consultant for Tick, Tick, Boom, directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Please correct me if I'm wrong and we can speak in more general terms. No, it uh, is. That's all correct. Yeah. Okay, good. But revealing as much as you're allowed to at this point, uh, what does the industry shutdown look like for you guys? Like, you guys have just recently started filming, I know. Are you able to do any work or rehearsals on it still of any kind? Um, no, you know, I think that, like, 
very similar to theater. Film and TV is shut down right now, and everyone's kind of in the same boat in their, you know, lone apartments and houses, just, like, waiting for it to start back up. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, You know, even though it's not a thousand people in a theater, you can't, you know, gather and make a movie right now. So everyone's just hanging tight. Oh, no. I I meant as far as, you know, any kind of even virtual rehearsals in that way. Because we've seen, uh, recently we saw, like, Classic Stage Company doing, like, Assassin's rehearsals with Ethan Slater doing Ballad of Cholgosh. So I was wondering if even on, like, the film side there was anything kind of happening like that, or if it's just completely quiet and everyone's doing their own thing. I think, you know, everyone is kind of doing their own thing and just, like, waiting to see what happens next. Uh, But it's definitely, like, a a pause where I think people are still thinking about the movie and, you know, what's going to happen next. And um, certainly, like, I've been digging back into my Jonathan Larson files and listening to some Jonathan songs. You know, Jonathan wrote a song called End of the World, which I've never been able to figure out. There's some stuff in his files that is just, you know, I I found a song on a tape, but I couldn't find a lyric sheet or I couldn't find a time when he, you know, was like, today I wrote End of the World. And so sometimes I'll be like, oh, this is a Jonathan song, but it also could be an obscure pop song that he's doing a cover of that I don't know. So uh, I've always wondered (laughs) that about this one track called End of the World and this time has obviously reminded me of that song and i listened to it i was gonna say it sounds very like, oh, yeah. fitting for right yeah. now i mean he's very present <laughs> as well but um yeah so digging back into the files has certainly been occupying a little bit of my time at the onset of all this i saw that you had placed like a call for college showcase videos to collect names for like f- future 54 below concerts which is just really lovely have you have you gotten a lot of that has that been kind of inspiring definitely you know it was one of the first things i thought of too um of like oh my god these core college seniors and um high school seniors too in a different way but college seniors oh yeah um their showcases are canceled and their graduations are canceled and they were planning on moving to new york this month and it's all so upsetting to me as someone who like god i hadn't even thought about that oh no (laughs) yeah yeah i mean it's it's definitely like you know gonna be a path for them that's unique to their graduating class and i was like oh god like what can i even do to speak to those students because um you know truly what inspired me was that i go and judge florida thespians every year and spend the week with like 11,000 high schoolers in Florida and that was canceled and I was so sad for those teenagers because it was such a um, I love going back and doing that now as an adult but it was also such an important formative thing for me as a teen so um, you know I reached out to those students first and actually was like hey if any Florida thespians want to like send me your performances and like or you know anything I'll watch them and um, I was doing that for a while before I was like oh what can I do to help college seniors as well or just to reach out to them and I've certainly watched a lot of the MC Showcase 2020 uh, videos which have been amazing and which mm. um, I'm so inspired by the fact that, you know, those students are like putting themselves out there and just like keeping hopeful in any way during this time. But the fact of the matter is like, you know, hopefully we will work together and hopefully having those videos out there. I know a lot of people are working to organize that effort and, you know, put full showcases online. And I think that that will be oh, helpful for that graduating class. And a lot of that will lead to, you know, great things. But the fact that it, it's not going to happen for a while, it's something that like, I'm glad that I helped put out in the universe and, you know, again, seeds being planted. But, um, you know, the thing that's great about the internet is that will exist. And a year from now when we click on that and when we're like, oh, we're doing it, yes, let's go yes. those, those will all exist. So um, I think that that was an awesome thing to start. And I hope those students are just keeping hope in their heart and knowing that this isn't forever and there'll be another time when um, yeah. we are working and singing and all of that. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, between this and, like, Laura Benanti calling for high school students to do, like, sunshine videos, uh, I, I think it's – I think people, uh, younger performers – seem to be I, I there's a lot going on with broadway performers and professional performers but it does seem like people are just younger people are just really putting their art out there still which has always been the case so that's a good consistent thing to see is that as you said things exist on the internet and will continue to exist on the internet so people are putting out their work just to get whoever to see it and now we're even doing it in greater quantities Totally. And it's like, you know, the fact that we live in this time where there's so much incredible content, like, I thought that that Rosie program was going to be like fun and silly. And it was one of the most moving things that ever. Right. I loved it. It was incredible. In Broadway history books, and the fact that the community is coming together in such unprecedented ways, both because of the technology available and because of the way that like, you know, what's happening right now. Um, So much of that content, it's like, you know, there's an original cast reunion reading of the Heidi Chronicles today. Like, this would not be happening if, you know, what's happening with <laughs> that. Know. People are really, <laughs> you know, putting themselves out there in that way. And in some ways, I know people are joking about it. Like, oh, my God, more living room concerts. And, you know, that's fine. Like, I understand that there's such a I will of take every um, single con. I will take every single concert someone totally. wants to put out. I will watch anything at this point. And I think that's the point. I think people are recognizing, performers are recognizing that they need, they, you know, they are feeling the urge and the itch to do this as much as we all want to see it. So totally. the show goes on, if, if, if only on the internet. Exactly. And it's such a positive thing and it's so incredible. But I think like the main thing is like, if you feel like doing that, amazing. And if you don't feel like doing that or watching that, like that's fine too. Like everyone should kind of do what they need to do to stay sane and to be happy as much as they can and to incubate and like do what they want to do during this time. Um, You know, there's a lot of people that feel pressured to create and be productive, which like, I don't feel like that. I feel like, oh my God, I have all this time. Like I'm going to do things. But for people who want to like sleep or watch movies or read books, like do whatever you need to do. And, um, you know, whatever is going to make your brain, you know, get through this time. But on the other hand, you know, what it struck me that it's so moving and there's so much incredible content and things that wouldn't happen otherwise. And like connecting to people over live tweeting in like a positive way has been so fun. Like that's been so cool with the 50 verbal yeah. thing of like, oh, it's the best part of like the Tonys or the live musicals where people aren't being snarky. They're being celebratory and connecting. Um, but on the other hand, yes. it, it, it truly has reminded me that like, it is not theater. And like, I'm so grateful we live in the era of YouTube and we can watch like the old Tony Awards and the performances. Mm-hmm. But like, that is not theater. And like, the fact that like, you know, I'm sitting watching a performance and like when people clap, I'm like, oh my God, if people clap, I guess like, you remember the things that are only possible <laughs> when like people are in the same room connecting. Um, so true. It's like, it's, yes. it, it, it only makes me like miss theater more and more excited to get back to it because like, the screen is not the theater, you know, in that way. So it, it definitely made me think about all that stuff. Yeah, I've noticed myself watching old performances and kind of getting a huffy that there isn't like someone down the row from me on their cell phone. Like, how did I come to miss that? <laughs> yeah. I do think, though, it's like a completely different art form and form of connection, though. The fact that like, no doubt when tv when tv and you know film began like the way that theater evolved because of those things was interesting to see 
in the history of theater, but the way that like live social media and like everybody watching something at the same time, but also being able to talk about it at the same time has changed the way that our brains yes, like consume yeah. entertainment. Like that is such a different thing. Like that's this whole own art form, I think. Definitely. I mean, mentioning TV and film, like the way that we have so many avenues to watch TV and film, you know, uh, uh, in this case, binging, you know, whatever show, Tiger King or something, <laughs> is very different than how we used to consume TV on a weekly basis. Theater has a, theater is obviously transformed, but it hasn't changed so much in that form other than, you know, shows have longer runs than they did in the 20s and there's more going on or less going on at any certain point. Yeah, and you know, theater at its core will always just be people in the same building telling a story to each other. So there are ways yeah. that the consumption of every other kind of media can evolve. There are ways that, you know, we used to wait every Tuesday at 8 for a show, and now we binge it, like you said. Um, theater yeah. is fundamentally always going to be the same thing that Shakespeare was watching during the plague. Like, it's always just exactly. going to be people in a building telling stories. Exactly. So it's like, what things about theater can change um, and what can't while everything else is changing is like the eternal question. Absolutely. Now, the the biggest thing I've really been excited about uh, that you mentioned is 54 Below at Home, which I, 54 Below is one of my favorite places on earth. And the series is including like Liz Calloway and Alice Ripley, Emily Skinner, Joe Iconis, George Salazar, Charles Bush, so many others. Excitedly, uh, several shows I missed for as often as I'm at 54 Below. Now I get to see without having to even put on a bra. So that's always exciting for <laughs> me how did this how did these conversations start about doing this and putting this out to the world for people yeah you know we were so excited to be able to uh you know figure out what we had in our uh remote archive in terms of full performances that we had videoed uh that you know mm -hmm. a couple of videos might be on youtube but the full concert itself had not been you know streamed or put online. And so um, it's just been a, a process that our amazing marketing department and our marketing director, Nella Vera, have like put together uh, to, Love you know, Nella, some, of yes. it is, uh, some of it is like people in their living room, but most of it uh, is archival performances that are streamed in full one time. Um, and, you know, the first one was two player game with George and Joe, where it was just so fun. Right. To, like, I've seen that show live a million times, but I've never been able to like sit at my computer <laughs> and like live feed it with all of these fans of like, more chill and of Joe and George and be like oh yeah that moment happened because of that and it was really a fun way to consume it and connect with people as it was happening um, and we have so many that are coming up and some that we're working on now that haven't been announced yet that I'm psyched about but like yeah I want to oh, watch nice. Alice Ripley and Emily Skinner which again I saw live multiple times but being able to like watch it in your living yeah, room and connect with people at the same time it, I'm looking forward to that in a different way. Now, you are also doing, you said that there are going to be some that are coming from, like, people's living rooms, so are there going to be some live shows coming up as well? Yeah, some of those are announced. Um, honestly, we're limiting those to just people who have shows that are coming up, um, because it'll be a way for them to, like, sure. promote their shows. Um, David Yazbek was one, right? Yeah, you know, he hasn't done his yet. He had to postpone it. Uh, but, you know, some of those that are happening okay. will be people giving, like, a sneak peek of concerts that had to be postponed because of the crisis. Sure, sure. You know, uh, there's been a lot of conversations on accessibility, which you and I have had also previously in regards to the Jonathan Larson Project. A lot of organizations have archives that have up until now not 
been made public or have been made public for a limited amount of time, a la the National Theatre in London. That's obviously, you know, not the case yet everywhere where we have a we currently have a limited supply of like Broadway pro tapes available and people are still kind of clinging to their bootlegs at the moment, self-included. Uh, how does this, all of this influence the accessibility conversation going forward? Like, is that something we can be like, well, we did this to avoid not going completely bankrupt. Can we continue to do it? Because I don't think there's a black and white answer on accessibility as we've discussed, but I think it is revealing a lot of, biases maybe and the reasoning behind why organizations choose not to make things available at a, even a cost the hard thing is with that is like you know i think that for almost all of this stuff that's happening right now um it couldn't happen unless this crisis was happening because the amount of negotiation oh, yeah, absolutely. um the amount of negotiation and the expense of it would be impossible and the fact that people are figuring out how to do it just because of what's happening, um, you know, if none of this had happened, we would never be able to do 54 Below at home. So uh, it's, it's hard That's, because yeah. with all of this content, you know, there are musicians, there are actors, there are writers, there are videographers, there's the venue, there's so many people that need to be paid. And all those things need to be oh, negotiated sure. and yeah. contracted in a way that, um, you know, I think it's so great that certain places are, you know, figuring out ways to do it temporarily because of the crisis. Um, but to have those more long-term conversations, you know, all of the unions and everyone would need to be actively involved. And honestly, I think a lot of those unions are doing as much as they can to figure this out, but they're also worrying about oh, the numbers and things that are happening right now that um, need more attention in terms of helping people, you know, go through the crisis. So it's really tricky. And I think, you know, it always makes me laugh when I see people being like, you know, the New York Public Library should show all the videos. And I'm like, I don't even think people can Not wrap possible. their heads around. <laughs> yeah. That would be that would be more impossible than anything I can think of because the amount of artists and uh, entities and music rights and I mean it's so much that this whole thing is like a whole other art form that would need contracts that haven't happened yet. So I think it's really cool that so many oh, people yeah. are figuring out on, on a temporary basis how to do it, but the longer conversations about sustaining something like this will happen down the line. Yeah, I would hope so. Uh, but yeah, as you said, I think I think it's really interesting in terms of making this content available. It's not really any secret that some organizations are better than other than others we see national theater do things more regularly than say broadway but as you said that has a lot to do with that has mostly everything to do with the unions and the negotiations behind that so Honestly, as we've talked before about yeah it has to do with how much money people have and like the fact that yeah theater that's subsidized by the government overseas and theater where actors and musicians aren't paid exactly as can do it exactly. um, it's just you know it's complicated it means that uh, those contracts allow for it because the National Theater has the money to do it or because, you know, the compensation is different. So, um, you know, it's it's just such a balance in making sure people are paid fairly and navigating the fact that it's the new art form and what the financial structure even is, which thankfully a lot of companies like Broadway HD are, are slowly cracking. But I think that this will be a huge step yes, forward yes. in those conversations because of what is going on right now. To wrap up our conversation, we've talked about it a little bit, but what are you as both a creative and, you know, a producer, the whole shebang, what are you doing to keep busy and be creative in this time? 
You know, I think that like the best thing for everybody is just like do what you want to do during this time as far as, you know, if you again, like if Mm -hmm. you want to watch TV, watch TV. If you want to like, you know, write, write. But like it's really like whatever's going to be helpful to you is not the same for everybody. And for me, like I was so, so excited to have time to write my fourth book when I haven't had that kind of like ability to have bandwidth and just like focus on that completely. Um, And I think it's going to, it's making my fourth book better because like, I just can like fall down a rabbit hole about the 1943 season in a way that if I had, you know, earmarked four hours of time in between two things on a busy Tuesday to to do that, I I wouldn't be writing my book in the same (laughs) way. So for me, like I'm trying to use that as like a blessing to have the time. Um, And there's so much that, you know, we can't control about this horrible time, but I can control the fact that like I have the ability to write my book and I'm going to do that. Um, And it's something that like makes me really happy to do. Um, But at the same time, you know, I understand Mm -hmm. the the people that feel pressure to be productive. Uh, I I do get that. And I feel like I didn't watch TV or movies until like day 15 of the quarantine when I was like, oh, smash and smash was fun. We've had the exact opposite path. (laughs) I watched movies for like 10 days straight. And then I was like, all right, I feel ready to work again. (laughs) Which again, as you said, there's no right or wrong path. Exactly. And like, for me, it was like, I almost felt pressured that I didn't watch movies or TV. And then I was like, oh, I'm having trouble consuming things that I haven't seen already in a way that like my brain, I I watched some movies that I was like, oh, this is a great movie, or I really like this, but I like, I can't do it. My brain doesn't want to watch something new. And so I understand people that are sitting down at a keyboard and going like, oh, my brain can't create at this time, because we all are processing what's going on right now in different ways. So I think it's like, choose your choice. Um, But for me, like, it makes me so happy to wake up in the morning and write and like you know I have been falling into these like obsessive God please pass that on to me (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know look we're all in for the long haul here and this isn't going to be over tomorrow and so like maybe tomorrow you'll wake up and be like I feel inspired to do this maybe inspired to do that but we all just have to figure out if that's like cooking or sleeping or writing you know it's like whatever feels right it's really interesting to feel like you have so much time and absolutely no time at the same time right now (laughs) totally i completely understand that